Hello, agents. Before we start this week's show, we wanted to send some love to our friends over at the True Spies podcast. They've been talking us up a storm on their show recently, and we thought we'd do the same. So we strongly recommend you check out their new podcast, Spyscape, a history of the world in spy objects. They've got episodes on Jackson Pollock, poison-tipped umbrellas and button compasses, everything a growing spy needs, and it's available right now wherever you get your podcasts. But Cam, let's get to the show. Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Ken the Provocateur. And Scott, missed it by that much. Unsurprisingly, that's not the first time I've heard that in my life. (laughs) Oh my. Mm. But we do have a very, very special guest joining us this week. Cam, who do we have? Yes, we are talking to Barbara Feldon, who played the iconic 99 on Get Smart and also has a new memoir out, Getting Smarter, available in bookstores. Yes, it's a wonderful discussion with stories of Get Smart, Dean Martin and the Man from Uncle. So without further ado, let's uh, bring down the cone of silence and roll the interview. And joining us now on the show, the author of Getting Smarter, a memoir, it is Miss Barbara Feldon. Hello, Barbara, how are you? I'm great. How are you? We're scattered all over the world, evidently. This is this is transatlantic podcasting. It's wonderful. The yeah. the, the technology is great, isn't it? It I, it's amazing. I mean, this is the best use of it. Absolutely. Well, getting to see your smiling face is the best use of it. I would say. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but like I I mentioned the the book the memoir at the top here and i think that's the best place to start this discussion and and sort of just get to the bottom of of, to maybe what inspired you to want to write your memoir in the first place why did that sort of come to you and what did you want to do with it um i i had no particularly in particular interest in writing my memoir of my career and Mm -hmm. in fact when the book was first written it was barely mentioned and it was my editor who made me add more things about get smart and so forth (laughs) it would be a little disappointing (laughs) to fans to pick it up and see that it was all about a psychopath that i married and um it's not a victim story but it's a very funny rompy kind of uh unexpected uh, adventure that a young girl had uh, when she first came to New York and married this very, very glamorous uh, Frenchman Mm -hmm. uh, who had a background like CIA. I mean, talk about spy stuff. And uh, this was long before Get Smart. And although it, it that marriage actually um, overlapped with doing Get Smart, Mm I, uh, but it was, it, I, that's the reason I wrote the book is because it's like an adventure story. It's a romantic, extremely romantic adventure story. I, uh, and, uh, um, it's so unusual 
I mean, I thought the KGB was following me at one point. Uh, that I thought it would be fun to see if it, if it would read well, and I and it, it was great fun to write it. And as you know, probably if you've written things that once you get into it, you begin expanding and expanding. And of course, it covers Get Smart with anecdotes about that particular spy show where I wore the same trench coat I wore when my husband told me it was his spy coat. <laughs> and how long was this sort of story bubbling that you wanted to tell? Because it's obviously been quite a while since the marriage, but like, did it take a certain amount of time to kind of feel like you were had kind of the, the strength or whatever to actually put it on paper and put it out there? Uh, the first few years after the marriage, it didn't occur to me because my career was, of course, acting, and that went on for quite some time. But once I wasn't doing as much acting, I began writing more seriously. I'd always kept journals. Um, but then I began, you know, experimenting at first, obviously writing screenplay or writing poetry for many years. Uh, not that I had any ambition to show it to anyone, but I loved the process and it was very, uh, it was a very thoughtful thing to do. And it was a way to reach deeply into myself. And so that was its own reward. But then I, I don't know, I just began writing stuff down and I was telling the story to a friend who is a writer, a published writer. And she said, I, why don't you write this? Uh, mm -hmm. So I wrote it as a novel that was like almost 400 pages long, which didn't work. And then I rewrote it as a shorter novel and then I rewrote it as in my own voice. And that was that was the best that was the best use of the material. And I can say, like, it is a real page turner. Uh, I you was read it? I did indeed. Yeah, I read it over uh, three days. Yeah. And I was just gripped by it because I never knew which way it was going to go. And I was going to ask you actually about that because I'm reading it. It's so vivid, the storytelling. And I was going to ask you if you were someone who kept a lot of journals and diaries because I was like, holy smokes, this feels so specific. Yeah, no, I, well, first of all, I, I'm a great reader. So I've learned over many, many years um, what I enjoy to read. And so, and also writing poetry, poetry is so condensed. So this book is so edited in terms of taking out any word that isn't necessary. I just didn't want to bore anyone. I mean, that was my my biggest goal. I think was to have it have it just rip its way through, and uh, and be fun to read and not be boring. What were the toughest cuts you made? Oh, there was such oh material I just loved that I had worked so hard on, and it was. I mean, there were things about my phobias that, that my editor made me take out. <laughs> <laughs> they were very funny. Um, he said, you know, enough about it. We, we get it. Um, there were lots of stories uh, about people in my life uh, who were important to me that I wanted to write about on the same level as the other material. But 
um, I finally I, I realized I, I couldn't make this material work and I couldn't figure out why I couldn't. And then somebody uh, introduced me to a novelist named Eli Gottlieb. And Eli it, it teaches uh, writing at Columbia in addition to being an extraordinary novelist. And, um, and he, uh, on the side, edits books. And I gave it to him and said, this doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? And he shot, he read it and he shot back to me. He said, I can tell you exactly how to fix this. Mm. And said, "You first of all, you have to start the book on a, the book starts with, uh, uh, I'm on a red carpet, right? So, and then the rest is kind of a flashback. Um, he said, start at the peak of your career and and something with just like a flash. And of course there were flash bulbs and everything, but um, and so I wrote that and that started the book, right? And he said, you've got to keep the momentum going. If you're going to reminisce about the past, which I do about my parents and why I was so prone to get involved, you know, to believe a man who was a compulsive liar um, and why it was such an easy mark for somebody like that. Um, I had to go back to my childhood. And, but he said, anytime you do that, it's got to be placed right. And it don't let the reader off the hook. Mm. And that was probably the single best piece of advice that I got. And I, uh, and I just learned so much about, um, about structure. I mean, my weak thing was structure. And I was thrilled, you know, to learn these things. And so that's why I took out so much material that I really loved. And maybe I'll use it another way for essays and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I hate to throw it away because it, it's dear to my heart and I worked so hard on it. But um, it didn't belong in the book. And you talk uh, in the book about, you know, therapy helping you over the years. And I was wondering, like, was the, writing the book cathartic? Or do you feel like you'd already kind of had that catharsis and it was more kind of reflecting back now? Uh, the book, writing it and going back to that time, because that was time starting uh, before 1960. So I was going way, way back in time and remembering what it was like to fall in love with this glamorous character. Um I, it, it was so much fun to relive it. Mm. You know, it wasn't so much catharsis because I don't, I don't think there was much left to be cathartic about. Once I finished psychoanalysis, I, I kind of exhausted every possible, you know, link to catharsis. Right. But it was pure pleasure, and I could just enjoy the romance of it. And just remembering what it was like, and what it was like to be, to be that young and that much in love, and I never was in love like that again. And years later, I have this in the end of the book. My mother says to me, "I mean, after you know, Lucien is you know exposed and everything, I, I'm," she said, "I am so glad you had Lucien in your life." And I said, really, given how it turned out, uh, because I lost a lot of money in the, you know, along the way too. And mm -hmm. 
I, and she said, yes, because you were so in love and not everyone gets to experience that. And I'm so glad you did. Mm. And I thought that was so wise. And um, ultimately, I was very grateful for that, too. One thing I found actually in doing interviews and reading interviews over the years was oftentimes when people have worked on something that was like a real kind of like zeitgeist thing, like for you, Get Smart, but I've talked to people and heard people talk about, say, Star Trek, for example, is that when you ask them about it, it was kind of such a blur because like their personal life was so busy that the actual working experience is kind of like a, yes, I was very busy, but I had other focuses in my life. Was that kind of the case with you as well, looking back on Get Smart? Well, are you, are, when the people you're talking about, you mean they had like personal things like family and children and married, that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. It's like major life events that kind of, especially as the years go forward, just completely override kind of that memory of the actual working experience. Yeah. It's interesting because I have journals going all the way back. I mean, I wrote, I wrote it in journals every single day. So I had like shelves of them and uh, going back through the journals, I never mentioned my career. I never once mentioned that's why, yeah. not once. So yes, I think we live in our heads, right? And that's what we're struggling with is what's going on in our psyches. And I, so with me, it was all about relationship and um, yeah, it was all about relationship actually and trying to get over some of my insecurities in general and which everyone has, you know, when they're young, unless they're super, super fortunate. Um, and I, uh, and yes, the, the, the work itself was like, that's where I went to work uh, 13 hours a day. It was like a factory in a way. We just turned out this product mm. and um, there were days of great fun and pleasure. Um, but when you're doing something like that for five years, it kind of loses its exceptionalism to you mm -hmm. and it's just so every day and so without uh, without anxiety and without you know you just are learning lines and acting scenes and and the acting part is the best the the waiting part i don't know if you read that part of the book where i take the reader for a whole day on into the studio and uh, say what it was like. And as it turns out, it's like, you know, mostly waiting around and eating the forbidden brownies just <laughs> out of just the tedium of waiting. Right. Uh, well, I mean, one of the, the things that always fascinates me about when someone puts their story to, you know, to paper or, you know, they make a blog post or something like they want to present their story is you have to go through a fact-finding mission of looking over your past experiences so the question i suppose is what did you learn about yourself in the process of putting the book together i i think that i had already learned it about myself because i had so many years of psychoanalysis there wasn't mm. too much more <laughs> there were no real surprises <laughs> you'd seen it all uh, 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 yes um but i could apply all of the tools and the things i learned 
through, you know, the help I got psychologically uh, and what I call my toolbox. And I, I could take in the whole picture. I could understand how I would become so enamored of, uh, of a fantasy character. And, and, but that could happen to anyone. But the thing that happened with mm. me is I stayed. Once, mm. once I saw what was going on, I stayed. And I couldn't let go of it. I couldn't let go of the dream of it, the fantasy of it. I, I wanted it to be the original story that I and Lucien made up together. And uh, I, I, I didn't want to relinquish that. So um, I could understand in hindsight uh, what kind of need in me uh, made him essential because no one should be essential. I mean, that's just not a good way to proceed. And uh, he did become essential. and. And part of it was that the way I was raised as a girl, mm -hmm. you know, to to uh, give men this oversized glamour because they were men. You know, my dad, uh, he, he was an executive. He ran the household. He controlled the money. He controlled, you know, where we went, what we did, what we didn't do. Um, we kind of worshipped him and uh, just wanted so much to get his favor. And so I applied that to romantic situations. And uh, the women's movement came along and I, it did make a change. And I did begin to see things differently. And then, of course, therapy, I began to develop more of an individual self, not so much as a, of a cliche of a woman. And so those things and the fact that when I was uh, an infant, my mother disappeared for several months because my father was ill and they were separated and she went to take care of him. And I thought I'd lost her. Uh, and um, that need to, uh, to, be taken care of, you know, that need to be attached and not let somebody go kept me, you know, longer than I should have stayed in the relationship with Lucien. One of the things I thought was really interesting was where you talk about how, despite the fact Get Smart is a massive juggernaut of success, how like you didn't feel like fame kind of celebrity didn't interfere with almost your daily life. Mm -hmm. And I just had to wonder as I was reading it, you know, given the marriage and, you know, Lucian, like how fame would have amplified that. It's in some ways you're almost lucky that you were able to kind of avoid that kind of spotlight all the time. Uh, it, it is fortunate when you're living in California because you never see anyone. You're never on the street. So yeah. mostly you're going just to your friends' homes, you know, for dinners or little, you know, little mama, mom and dad restaurants. Uh, where they know you, you know, where you're not going to encounter the public. Um, I wasn't aware, you know, mm -hmm. of, of the impact it had. Uh, you know, if I got on a plane and everybody would recognize me and that was like 
oh, really? <laughs> you know, and but it was never a burden because I was never an quotes icon movie star. I, I was, you know, I was a co-star on a show that came into people's bedrooms and living rooms and they felt familiar with me and uh, they weren't like in awe. They were just happy to see me. Mm. So it, it, the big impact it had on my life was that the world suddenly became very sunny. You know, everybody was so nice, mm. you know, people smile on the street and, and that was, it, it, it was lovely. Uh, as, as you know, when, when the, the show's uh, popularity faded and years went by and it was off the air for a long time, I, I was treated more often like the rest of the world. And that was like, oh, mm -hmm. I forgot. <laughs> you know, I forgot what that was like. And like Get Smart really did have multi-generational appeal. I mean, I grew up watching it. Uh, my mom was a huge fan when it was originally airing and showed it to me as a kid. And, you know, there was, you know, the TV movie, there was the uh, reboot TV show that ran for a little bit. Did you find like that the kind of, not that the celebrity, as you said, was ever overbearing, but it did it kind of like change over time and it evolve? Uh, I, I, no, uh, no, because I was doing other things as well. So I was always... Mm -hmm sort of in the consciousness for a number of years of uh, the public. Mm -hmm. um, but for sure, one thing did not change, and that was that I was going to be forever Agent 99, which was just fine with me because it, I, I knew when I took the show and I had turned it down originally um, and then reconsidered it, I knew that... Um, it, it it would secure my future financially. Not that I made much money. I didn't on the show and we didn't get residuals, but um, I knew it would make it possible for me to work for quite a long time. And that if I was careful with my money, I'd be able to be secure later on in life when I wouldn't have my career anymore. So um, I, I don't know how I got off on that. I, I'm, I don't know if I answered the question. No, yes, definitely. And, you know, one thing that you never mention in the book, which is not often the case with people who play iconic characters, is you never mentioned feeling like you were typecast or kind of like stuck in a box after the show went off the air. Like, why do you think that was? Did, like, did you feel like you still had, like, interesting options? It didn't feel like you were too pigeonholed by playing 99. I knew that I would be hmm. when I took the show. I, I knew that that would be, uh, if the show lasted, I mean, who knew it was going to last? He could have gone off the air right away. Mm. Um, I knew I'd be typecast, and I was to a very great extent. But I enjoyed the things that I could do. I mean, I wasn't going to be a great, get the great dramatic movie or anything like that. Um, but I got to do all those wonderful variety shows, you know, Dean Martin and all these and I loved doing that because it went really, really fast. And the sketches were just silly fun. And the dance numbers and the singing and all of it was just like playing. 
and uh, so I was I I've always been very grateful and I know that there are other actors who resent their big you know their big popular success mm-hmm. and I think you know you could have gotten nothing you know you could have been like 95% of most actors and never gotten a job that put you on the map and to be on the map at all is so unlikely and so fortuitous and i've always been very very grateful i i'm i'm somewhat reticent to throw a bunch of get smart questions at you because i actually would urge listeners to go and, and re- pick up the book and, and get some of the stories from there instead and, and do some more research because that's kind of what we're here we want to talk about your book but i do have a sort of more of a macro question about playing agent 99 what impact did agent 99 have on your life and your career okay so you have to say what impact did get smart have mm-hmm. on because i was a cog in a wheel of a really beautifully oiled machine mm. and that machine was conceived of constructed and operated by brilliant comedy writers um, buck henry and mel brooks so i never lost sight of the fact that i did not create my success mel brooks and buck henry created my success because they created this particular show that showed me off gave me an opportunity to play a character that i couldn't have dreamed up you know i wasn't a feminist then you know i was later but not yet and uh, mm. here was this character who was just so full of confidence, everything I didn't have. And um, what effect did my character have on me? Yeah. Uh, Agent 99 was a lot more confident than me. She was a lot more, uh, she was a lot more evolved as a feminist than I was. So I suppose it had maybe some little effect because I was, playing that every day so i kind of caught up to her by the end of the series um but another effect it had on my life was that um because she was a kind of transition character from the 1950s to the 1970s i she had within her that deference toward men, the kindness, you know, that later got brittle with some feminist characters in series where they're tougher. Mm-hmm. Uh, Age 99 was never tough. She was just smart and capable, but it was an underlying kind of deference to her partner uh, that came off as a kind of kindness. And I, uh, and that made her so likable, you know, to the public. And uh, and I think that I was the recipient of that reflected, you know, uh, uh, reflected impression that she gave. I mean, I, I just want to point out for listeners, we're clearly in the presence of true class because your first instinct was to credit everyone else on the show 
and not yourself. And that's uh, wonderful to see. But I will, I'll throw it back at you for a second, because much as you had these great team working around you, they set it all up. You still kicked the ball into the goal. You still did that. That's your work. And you brought that character to life in your own way. And there's a reason why when I asked people online, uh, you know, we're speaking to Barbara Feldon, what are your questions? I was inundated with questions for you. Huh. People still love the character. They still want to hear from you about Agent 99. And I've had to filter some of these questions down because I've had so many of them. So I'll, I'll throw a couple at you about Agent 99. Um, and one that you also just kind of led into there, because uh, one of the questions we got was, do you think that Agent 99 kind of led the way for these stronger women in spy franchises going forward? Because you see that change start to happen post the 1960s into the 70s onwards. And you kind of did say something similar just then. But do you think Agent 99 had sort of an effect on the writing of, of sort of female characters going forward in TV? I think Agent 99 represented something that was happening in culture. Mm. No, I don't think you can lift any anything out of its time and say that would have existed in any time. It wouldn't have. It was the um, the creative the creative writer always has these antenna, and they pick up on what's happening around them that we don't yet see. And I think they were mm. they were sensing where we were going as women, and they could they would not have written that character ten years before. She'd have had an apron on ten years before, and I so I think it was their prescience, mm. uh, that and their sensitivity to the times that created the character just as the the whole idea of chaos and and control came out of the whole all of those cia debacles during that period where the cia was just you know in red headlines and people were hating it or whatever um and making fun of it in the bond movies i i mean certainly 99 stepped out of the Bond mold, mm. even though the Bond movies were a kind of prototype for our writers to take to an absurd degree. I, but Agent 99, it's interesting. It's an interesting question because I never thought about this. But Agent 99 I changed changed the female factor. She was not you know, just, you know, all boobs and, you know, hips and sex object. Uh, she wasn't aware of herself as mm. sexy at all. And, um, but she had her little motor going, you know. <laughs> uh, but it, it was not explicit, you know. And so, yes, they they moved through 99 they moved the they moved the chess pieces forward mm. and i should cite that that question came from alice and she did have a, an additional question to ask you uh, just a quicker one really but uh, alice wanted to know did you get to keep any of your outfits from the show okay first of all a lot of those outfits were my own wardrobe wow so i, I kind of said i had been a model before that mm. so i was very into fashion and it was the mod times you know it was a very exciting time so in the beginning i was pretty much wearing my own clothes and then there were certain stores um 
uh, Kathy Capriotti had a, a, a kind of look that I loved. So they began getting uh, uh, most of my outfits from there. Uh, yes, did I keep them? Everything. Everything. I kept <laughs> all of them. Yes. Uh, it never occurred to me that I wouldn't, mm. you know. That's something that happens when you're in a situation where you're um, being treated in a very special way because you're the one being, you know, you Don and I were being focused on. Mm-hmm. And so you're like, you're in danger. And I say this in the book, you're in danger of thinking maybe you're a little more remarkable than you really are. Just because every day, 13 hours a day, what would you like to eat? What can we bring you? What would you like? Oh, you want to keep that? Sure, you can have that. Uh, You know, and uh, you can get spoiled. Mm. And I realized and I really knew that, you know, this was temporary and uh, it's fine, but don't get too stuck on it. And... A question I have also seen a lot is, you know, you reprised 99 for, as I said, you know, Get Smart Again and the reboot TV show. Were you ever offered a cameo in the 2008 Get Smart film? Yes, but I, I never even considered it. No? Yeah, they wanted me to, but no, I wasn't interested in any way. Get Smart was, and I'm very glad I didn't. Mm. Uh, first of all, Don was no longer living. And I wouldn't have wanted to appear without him. Mm-hmm. And uh, because they went together, you know. Um, but the movie uh, was really a good movie. I mean, I went to see it and I really enjoyed the movie. But the innocence of Get Smart culture had moved on. Mm-hmm. You know, you couldn't do Get Smart the way it was. It was too innocent. It was too... Right. Um yeah, it was too kind of dear. <laughs> um, and I, so I'm really glad. I thought, you know, I had my, I had my time and 99 had her time in me and uh, not, I wasn't going to mess around with it. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Attention, spy hards, die hards, independent podcasting. Much like the spy game requires considerable resources, whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course constructing a hidden moon base, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right, the Spy Hearts Patreon is the home to our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors, and The Debrief, where we activate our billion-dollar brains and predict how the spy movie news of today will shape tomorrow. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Ho, ho, ho. It's time for some Christmas content on the Spy Hearts Patreon. And this week, we are going to review the 1971 police thriller, The French Connection, directed by William Friedkin. After all, who's more jolly than Gene Hackman? So accept your mission and hop in the Hellmobile today at patreon.com slash spyhearts. But before Spectre agents intercept this broadcast, let's get back to the spy jinx i i suppose then my last sort of uh question about we said spy stuff earlier was the 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 term we used but not looking at get smart one thing that jumped out to me when i was looking through your credits is before you even got smart as it were you appeared on the man from uncle 
yeah. which is uh, not something I've seen much of. And I've, I, I've seen some of the show and I've loved what I've seen so far, but I'm trying to make my way through. I haven't caught your episode yet, but just do you have any sort of recollections of working on Uncle and, and, and working with that wonderful cast? Oh, vividly. Oh, I, I uh, it was the third television show I ever did. Mm. And I, and it was like the show on the air. I was so like intimidated in in one sense and thrilled, and I, I just remember loving it. Caesar Romero was on it, and of course I'd seen him in movies and things. I hadn't seen the two leads except on their show. And my scenes, um, I think my scenes seemed to be more with Caesar. And he was such a darling. And I, everybody was so nice. And it was fun. And it was like, oh, my God, I'm a man from Uncle. I can't believe it. And I wanted to just ask um, about, you know, you mentioned working on the Dean Martin show. Yeah. And... We are big fans of Dean Martin. We recently went through all the Matt Helm films. If you had perhaps like a Dean Martin story. Here's the thing about working with Dean Martin. Mm. And if you ask any performer who did variety shows, their favorite experience, I swear they will say Dean Martin. And that is mine. That you feel like you love this person. I mean, you don't feel like you love them. You really do love love them, like not like love them, but love them, you know, with your with some abundant sort of friendship. And you never converse with him. Uh, you never rehearse with him. Hmm. What they would do is, I mean, there's a funny, there, there's a funny, you can get it on YouTube. It's called, I mean, if you if you type in Dean Martin and Barbara Feldon on the bench. And so I rehearse with somebody else, you know, for the two days of rehearsal. And then I don't see Dean. And then when we're ready to shoot, I'm all set. They've got the cameras ready. Okay, they're, the audience is there. And Greg Garrison, who is a wonderful producer of that show would say, bring out the kid, meaning Dean. And I would come Dean, and he, he didn't know what was going to happen. He was just going to read it off the prompter. I don't know if he ever read it beforehand or not. And what it was the performer's job to do was to get reactions out of him. And in this particular one, I mean, it's a, a kind of a sexy thing. And I... It is so much fun because he, I, I, there's a picture of me with him in the book, in the back of the book. Yep. And you can just see the joy of both of us in doing this sketch. And that, that was what it was like to work with him. And I was fortunate enough to do it in about, I guess I did about five of his shows. And I, uh, it was spontaneous. I think that was it. it you, you know your lines. He's going to read his. And then you're going to see what's going to happen. And it, you have no idea. And <laughs> afterwards, something has happened. And it's a joy. 
Well, as I, I start to bring the conversation to a close, I have a couple of quick questions for you. First and foremostly, for those who are considering picking up the book after listening to this, what can people expect from getting smarter a memoir? What, what, what are they getting themselves into? Um, you know, the book is kind of a hybrid. You know, it's not like a novel that just has the through line of the romance. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is about Lucien and the whole bizarre roller coaster unimagined adventure I had with him. I so that is probably the dominant thing and and it's fun to read because it's kind of unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's the get smart stuff and I I do spend a good deal of time telling stories about Get Smart and uh, what it's like to be on the set. And then there's the, maybe the reflection part where here is where I am now. Here's what my life is now. And here is how I responded to all of these extraordinary events that happened during my life and what I learned from them. And um, and ultimately, you know, understanding uh, and appreciating experiences that we may not have, you know, entered into if we'd known that they would not be all good, like my marriage. Um, not like Get Smart. That was that was good. I. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and understanding that a psychopathic uh, person is born with the conscience part of their brain not developed. So, and I say that it seems sad that Lucien was, it was his fate to be, a, you know, from birth, that he was born into what he became. Mm. And it it and also to appreciate as other people who got involved with him did that he was he was a dream maker, you know, and we were looking for a dream to fulfill. And he gave you the belief that you could with him. This was going to happen. And you just go up in a helium balloon, you know, and eventually and i say this in the book that the rest of us just bailed out at a certain point and saved ourselves and he just kept going and destroyed himself it was sad Mm -hmm. and i suppose then the next question i would have and this is one i i I, i'm always curious to know because you know we could say get we could say age 99 because they get smart but for you looking at your career as, as a piece of work what role what performance are you most proud of i uh, it's it's not so much the performance it's sort of the the, the totality of the project mm-hmm. uh, absolutely get smart mm-hmm. uh the performance probably the dean martin show <laughs> is my favorite right. i i i mean because it gave me more mm. latitude 99 was you know uh, after you've done it a few times it's not that challenging but the that show was fun and challenging 
And uh, there was a movie I did called Smile that I really, I don't, have you seen it by any chance? I haven't seen it, but I'm familiar with it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's a little gem. And it's about a beauty pageant that Michael Ritchie, the filmmaker, had actually participated in the year before. And he thought this would make the most amazing movie about Americana, the phenomenon of beauty pageants in America. And uh, he and another writer wrote it. And I played Brenda this she was she had stiff hair like she was so lacquered that if a <laughs> came along you know her body would fly away before the hair would and she was brittle uh she was enamored with the whole she had been a beauty pageant winner but she was just a little over the hill and her skirts are a little too short she's a little too charming and very underneath very cold and angry and michael said to me one day before we were shooting a scene he said when your husband shoots you i want every man in america to stand up and cheer <laughs> and i i started to cry because when you're playing a character, you believe in that character. I didn't think she was uh, hateful at all, you know. And uh, I mean, it's a comedy. This is not, she, she didn't get killed. He hit her shoulder. But um, I'm proud to have been part of that. And I liked my performance very much. Uh, it, it was fun to play someone so unlikable. And it was so easy. It was so shockingly mm. easy. It's like, who am I that <laughs> I can do this so easily? I didn't even have to think about it. What have I become? Um, well, the last question then I have for you, and this question has been asked to literally everyone we've ever had on the show. And now we primarily focus on spy movies here. So I'm sorry if the question is more movies than TV, but Barbara Feldon, the question for you is, what is your favorite spy movie of all time? Oh, gosh. I didn't like spy movies. Oh, no. <laughs> the listeners aren't. <laughs> no. That's interesting unto itself, honestly. That is actually, yeah. I was kind of into foreign films and, mm -hmm. you know, um, Antonioni. <laughs> I was a little, sure. a little on the pretentious side, I think, uh, in my tastes when during that time, and I, uh, I, the spy that came in from the cold, that was really, 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 mm, really. There you go. Yeah, mm -hmm. that, was, that was a good movie. And I think the same year as Get Smart as really? well. Yeah, sixty-five. I didn't see it until many years later. That is a firm favorite. Yeah, absolutely. I great choice yeah okay yeah yeah but when you asked i'm immediately thinking of the bond movies and then i never got into them much but sorry they're, they're not for everyone no no don't just i didn't make them don't have to apologize <laughs> <laughs> um but barbara it's been an absolute pleasure and i can say that on definitely on behalf of myself and definitely on behalf of cam and everyone getting to listen and hear from you i recommend everyone go out and grab a copy of getting smarter and memoir but barbara it's been an absolute pleasure 
Thank you. And I, I thank both of you. For, you. Your questions were so wonderful. I don't think you asked a question I'd ever been asked before. Wow. And it really made me think. And you always appreciate someone who makes you think. And so thank you for that opportunity. I so, so enjoyed it. There you go, folks. That was our chat with the wonderful Barbara Feldon. I want to thank her once again for taking the time to speak to us on the show. And I'd urge you all to go out and check out Getting Smarter, a memoir available now wherever you get your books. But Cam, what did you think of that? This was like a real treat because I grew up watching Get Smart, as I mentioned in the interview. To me, like and yet you never did. I never did. But Get Smart was to me like Batman 66. Mm. where I was introduced to it at a young age, and I took it very seriously. I was aware that, yes, Don Adams was amusing on the show. He was goofy, but this was serious spy business. Mm. And I'm sorry, the threat of chaos is real, and we need to be concerned, people. And so, like, you know, from the probably, like, grade two or three to, you know, later in elementary school... I was obsessed with it and would introduce friends to it. And we were all really into Get Smart. And I did watch the later on TV movies and reboots and what have you. But to be able to talk to Barbara just about the experience of Get Smart, but also about her book, which I you know read in advance of this interview, just a riveting story. And to be able to kind of like not only find out more about just portraying 99 but also just about the person she is like because mm -hmm. i wouldn't have known that as a kid i didn't have that experience this was very enlightening to take part in this conversation no i completely agree cam i think it was uh it, it's great to see what goes on behind the scenes and we did a little bit of chat about get smart and that you know that was definitely fun to talk about but i mean behind the scenes with the people mm. because yeah you know, we've spent years going to trek conventions and things like that and the thing that we really love is sort of getting to know those stars same thing for our interviews it's getting to speak to people who make the films but finding out more about them as a person because not only does that sometimes influence and speak to what they do on screen and yeah we learned for instance that barbara's wardrobe was a big inspiration for agent 99's wardrobe one thing led to the other and i think learning these things about her history uh it is fascinating it reminds me of like, you know, we have seen William Shatner many times in Vegas and also the star of a huge pop culture, you know, phenomenon like Barbara was with Get Smart. Mm -hmm. And if you ask him about, say, what's your favorite episode? He's going to cite um, Devil in the Dark. And it's because his father had died during that period and they had a very touching moment on set. And it's mm -hmm. like the personal life is such a hugely important part of them as actors but that is often like when you move forward, you know, the fact is like Barbara talks about Get Smart and all the kind of information you want to know, how she got the role, favorite episode, that kind of stuff. But ultimately, it's about the personal journey she's on and in some ways how that influences the character you're seeing on screen. And, you know, if you asked me what I was doing at work 20 years ago, which is about when I started working, I couldn't tell you. Yeah. I'll tell you what the job was, but I didn't know what I was doing. Ask me a week ago. I would struggle with that one. Yeah, I actually might agree with you on that one too. So, it, I, yeah, I'm always in awe of anyone who can have that sort of recollection, even if it's little stories that we got here and that are also in the book. But no, I, I, I think it's good to get to know the person behind the character because I think that is, it's probably, for me, far more interesting. Very much so. And, you know, it's so interesting when you read the book and 
who she was and you know she talks about it in the interview how this marriage she had you know she was with someone who there is some spy craft involved in this story you know spy hearts die hearts so you'll find that very interesting but how there was these qualities that you know 99 had that she found very aspirational mm. and how over time she's come to kind of like realign the way she sees that character and the importance of who that you know that person she played was in terms of her own life no absolutely and i think just as sort of a final note for me it's forever humbling that we get a chance to speak to some of these spy icons now you know people might tune in and expect us to be speaking to you know denise richards every week but you know the spy world it goes beyond james bond and you can't forget how influential and uh, popular shows like get smart were in the 1960s and continue to be i mean they had two movies a big screen reboot with steve carell all sorts of stuff with that property and you never know where it's going to go so for us to sort of get the chance to speak to an icon like barbara is not lost on me no and also as you and i have discovered tracking the history of spy movies there are not a lot of hugely prominent female spy characters mm -hmm. in the early days of the genre. And when I say early days, I guess I mean more so like the boom in the 60s and going forward. Because there's obviously stuff before that. But like the 60s is where spies really find their footing in the film world big time. Sure. And there's not a lot of you know franchises or major movies that really prominently feature female spy characters who are dynamic and interesting and funny. And... 99 was kind of like a real gift for fans of the genre in that respect and you raised the question yourself you know like do you see an influence going forward that we now live in a world where there are more depictions of female spy characters in media and 99 is a crucial part of kind of getting that ball rolling absolutely and you know not all of the most recent female-led spy movies are a success but the fact that we keep seeing them and there is attempts constantly to get one to stick to become a, a new franchise both in tv and spy film uh it, it i think it tracks back to the successes of, of people like barbara definitely and another bit of joy i had in this episode was just you and i over the past year and a little bit more have become obsessed with Dean Martin. Mm. And to hear another story about someone who worked with Dean Martin, keep these stories coming, people. Everybody loves somebody sometimes, and boy, do we love Dean Martin. So much so that we almost made a pilgrimage to Dean Martin Drive when we were last in Las Vegas. We love the guy. I don't know why we didn't. We have to remedy that this year. It's kind of hard to get to, but uh, I'll make sure we get there next year, Cam. But... Uh, Speaking of next year, one thing we need to do at the end of every year is talk about a Christmas film, and uh, I hear them sleigh bells ringing. Yes, we are going to be talking about the 2010 Bruce Willis spy comedy, Red, the first of a new franchise we're going to be tackling on the show. Yes, it's actually been a film we've had requested a few times. It's, it seems to have quite a popularity with spy movie fans. It's got a great cast, and it's got quite a lot of Christmas connections in it too, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too, for sure. So there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to join us next week as we take a look. 
at 2010's Red. Retired and extremely dangerous. And if you like what you heard on the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and becoming a Spy Hard's Die Hard. And you can find out more about that in our regular review episodes. And if you don't already, please check us out on social media at Spy Hards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, Cam and I are off on a shopping spree to find ourselves some Agent 99 trench coats. Mm-hmm.